The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Funding for the Capital Weekly Podcast is provided by the California Endowment and by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Greetings and welcome to Capital Peak Weekly's regular bo- podcast. I'm John Howard. I'm joined by Tim Foster. Hello. And our special guest, Scott Soriano, author of two stories that have appeared that are great. Three stories that have appeared. Um, I got it right this time. Uh, they're about rape crisis centers in California, issues involving rape investigations, how, what happens with them legally, how people are treated and helped and where All the funding comes from? To that. Yes, where the funding comes from, or where it doesn't come from, too. Anyway, Scott, thank you very much for being here. Hello. Um, you have any any big takeaways from this exhaustively researched uh, series you've done? I mean, really, there's a lot in it. Well, the big takeaway for me is um, rape crisis centers, which are pretty much on the front line of of sexual assault, as far as helping survivors of sexual assaults. Yeah. Uh, they're truly first responders. Mm-hmm. They have uh, a lot of responsibilities, a lot of responsibilities put on them by the state government, uh, federal government, uh, but are funded at an obscenely low level and still manage to do a lot of good work with with relatively uh, few resources. What do you think the state and federal governments haven't put in the kind of money they should put in, given the fact that they both say we need these centers? Well, the, the numbers are kind of, uh, the numbers are pretty much um, like this. Uh, rape crisis centers are non-governmental organizations. They're yeah. non-profit, non, non-governmental organizations. Uh, they're mostly funded through um, the federal government and the state, but the federal government uh, funds the lion's share of rape crisis centers across the country, mm-hmm. but particularly in California. Uh, in California, 95% of the funds that rape crisis centers receive come from the federal government. 5% come from the state. And and it's well known with within the state that uh, these uh, rape crisis centers are underfunded by about... Ninety-two thousand dollars per rape crisis. And how many how many rape crisis centers are there? There are eighty-four rape crisis centers in um, California, distributed among the fifty-eight counties. Mm -hmm. Uh, The smaller counties have one. Some of the bigger counties have, like Los Angeles, have multiple. And and much of their funding, aside from the government, right, of federal or state, but aside from the governments. Is private, right? They're donations, people. Yeah, they get d- donations, fundraisers, you know, and and that's skewed towards the the rape crisis centers that are in urban areas, mm-hmm. especially progressive urban areas like um, Santa Clara County, uh, San Francisco, Los Angeles, San Diego. But when you start getting to the more rural counties, rape crisis centers there, then you you don't have that philanthropic base. You don't have you even have a smaller volunteer base, mm-hmm. uh, which which and volunteers are really important to rape crisis centers. So that kind of impacts funding too. So some of these rape crisis centers, like in San Francisco, are able to make up uh, shortfalls. Like San Francisco, the city has a commission on women, 
and then they donate or they, they contribute a certain amount of funding to the rape crisis center there. Uh, in Santa Clara County, the, the, the county has allocated some money to the rape crisis center there. But Santa Clara County is one of the richest regions in the world. You know, so they can they can kick in that money. Mm-hmm. Uh, Madera County, uh, Tulare, Lake County, you know, even Butte County. You know, where a lot of farm workers are too, by the way. Right, you right. You know, th- those are those are counties that are that are relatively poor or on the lower end of the economic scale in California, and they don't have a lot of rich people there mm-hmm. that that can kick. You know, can write a check for even ten thousand dollars. You know, and send it. Does, does away. that suggest that the Rape intervent the quality of rape intervention services are better, or more effective in a in a Santa Clara or a San Francisco or a Santa Ana or San Diego than, uh, than it would be in Brawley. Uh, not necessarily. Um, it just means that they have more resources, and so the the people there are not as uh, thinly spread mm-hmm. as in in a place like like Lake County is a, is a, is a great example. Mm-hmm. Lake County is is one of the poorest if not the poorest county in California. Mm-hmm. Um, in the last 5 years it's been hit by major wildfires as many as uh, as any other county and and their economic base to start with is very small. It's agriculture and tourism, and the tourism is limited to Clear Lake. So it's not like a huge tourist destination. And so the people there, they're not making a, a lot of money, the, the people who live there. So they don't have the, the time. They're too busy finding, trying to find jobs to, to pay for their, yeah. to, to live. They don't have time or the resources to volunteer to, to the rape crisis center there, so the rape crisis center there has relatively few volunteers to do basically serve as rape crisis counselors. Mm-hmm. Than say some place like San Francisco, uh, it doesn't mean that the the quality of service that those that those counselors or the rape crisis center itself is is lower than say in San Francisco or Santa Clara County. Yeah, it just means that there there's fewer people to do. All the all the work. Well, one thing I found really interesting in your story, uh, recent story, was the the pricing. So, if you're someone that works at a rape crisis center, you might make an average of fourteen to twenty dollars an hour, which in Sacramento is, you know, that's basically probably working at a bookstore. You know, but sure. if you're working at a rape crisis center, you need to have a lot of skills. You need to have a lot of training. You know, need to go through classes, yeah. and it's it's a highly skilled job. And yet you're being paid for basically unskilled labor, and it sounds like most people probably do it as a labor of love. Right. Yeah. Well, there's two, and there's there's two to to back up a little bit. There's the two main uh, kind of frontline first uh, responders in rape crisis centers are rape crisis counselors and then rape crisis advocates. So the rape crisis counselors are the first people who are called. So if somebody get uh, somebody gets sexually assaulted, they go to the hospital. Automatically, there's a call to the rape crisis center, 24-hour, seven-day-a-week, 365-day hotline. Um, the rape crisis counselor has to respond in 10 minutes uh, and go to wherever the, the, and this the, all the mandated, hospital. This, this is mandated, mandated by, the, by state. the state. This is like state service uh, requirement. Those rape crisis counselors, the first people, uh, are volunteers. Almost all of them are volunteers. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them also double as rape crisis advocates, too. But most of them are volunteers. So they don't get paid. They have to, but they have to be trained. So that they have to do at least 30 hours of, of training. And it's pretty in- intense training. 
and then they do the job. After they do the initial job of helping and walking a sexual assault survivor through through the, the initial system, then the case gets handed over to a rape crisis advocate. And they do things like find housing, uh, psychiatric care, medical care, things like that for the for the rape survivor, those folks are generally are paid. Uh, and they're, they're the mm-hmm. folks that are paid 14 to $20 an hour. But they have college degrees. Some of them have master's degrees. Mm-hmm. They all, almost all, all have BAs, but some of them also have master's degrees. So the, they're working, and they tend to be a little bit older. Not necessarily, but, you know, they're, they're not like 18 years old. You know, they have families. Where, where's the law enforcement piece of this? A rape victim... Right. Um, goes to the hospital, goes for medical treatment. Right. But is there a is there a requirement, a state mandate, a requirement that law enforcement be alerted, or is that a decision that the victim? No, it's a decision of the of the survivor. So basically, what happens if somebody uh, experiences sexual assault? Then they they can do one of several things. I mean, if they call the police uh, and a, an officer comes then the officer has to tell them what their rights are as far as like, and one of their rights is that they have a right to see a rape crisis counselor to help them through the process. So now, and then if they want to go to the hospital, then the police officer takes them to the hospital. And then automatically that's when the rape crisis counselor gets called. Now, the survivor... They have a choice. I mean, they can call the police if they want, but up to uh, 60% of survivors don't report it to the police. Really? Yeah. Though the numbers are really, uh, it's one out of all the crimes, it's one area that the stats are are really hard to come by. Is there a difference between those in rural areas and the smaller places, inland, maybe farming areas, as opposed to Santa Clara, San Francisco? Yeah, in places like San Francisco, has to do mostly with with education, a, a lot with education. Yeah. So yeah. you know, the more educated somebody is, the more that, and the more aware they are of the resources, and also the more faith that they have in the system, the more likely they are to to report. Well, and you also go into the fact that farm workers have, or feel that they have many less resources because a they may be undocumented immigrants, they may have a language barrier, they may not have any idea of their rights, and so their percentage of reporting is. Uh, seems to be much lower. Yeah, that's the third story uh, that, that that I wrote on is about uh, farm workers and how they interact with the rape crisis system and and that and farm workers in California around forty nine percent, according to the National um, Agricultural Workers Survey, about forty nine percent aren't documented. Fifty one percent are either uh, citizens or they have green cards. Yeah. Now, now the ones with green cards also. F- have a precarious relationship with the INS and Border Patrol, especially yeah. under zero tolerance, you know, Trump's zero tolerance policy. So so there's distrust between, there's some just initial distrust between them and the system, and the system being cops and DAs too. So the, there's that barrier that uh, farm workers have. There's a blackmail piece to this too, you mentioned Right. In, well, in well yeah, you know, and there's also farm workers, especially either undocumented ones or ones that have green cards, are 
very uh, vulnerable to a lot of things, exploitation of their labor, yeah. getting underpaid, uh, bad working conditions. Oxfam pretty much says that they are the most exposed worker to a lot of bad stuff than, than any other worker in the United States. And one of the things that happens is that bosses, farm contractors, are known to use uh, sexual blackmail on workers. Sleep with me, uh, or I'll report you to the INS. Or you're fired, and then they have no, and you won't get hired anywhere else. And so it's coercion. And so, you know, if you're going to have a more, I think, liberal or realistic view of, of, of what rape or sexual assault is, then it's, it's sexual assault. I mean, because you're taking somebody who's relatively powerless, a, a person who's relatively powerful, taking somebody who's relatively powerless and coercing them into to sex. And also that industry, uh, according to your story, I think only about a third of the people that are working in that industry are women, and they're almost all in the fields, and none of the management, none of the people running things, they're all men. Oh, yeah, very few are women. Um, there are some, but very few. The people in authority are men, and this group of, uh, of women, you know, are, are very vulnerable. Uh, uh, given the state's uh, political orientation, I mean, generally, right. California is viewed as a... Uh, well, it is. It's a Democrat-controlled state, sure. legislatively, voter registration-wise, everything. But given that position, wouldn't one expect more support from state government to deal with this issue, more support for right, uh, rape crisis intervention centers? It just seems like a logical, there's, it, it's just odd that there, there's not. And, and even though you've talked to a lot of people say it's a big problem, right. when it comes down to funding, it, state funding of it, it, it's not happening. Yeah, it's one of those things that everybody supports rape crisis centers. Everybody supports the mission of the rape crisis center. Yeah. Republicans. Democrat, conservatives, socialists, everybody supports them. Uh, there's no, there's no anti-rape crisis center lobby out there. What it comes down to is how important people feel that they are, and what the state or the government's responsibility is in funding a social service. So, in a way, it's almost like like anything else, mm-hmm. and then. And then it's like, how many resources do we have to allocate to whatever social programs or uh, um, things, and, and where are we going to spend the money? Mm-hmm. And so when it comes to that, you pretty much have three in the state legislature, you have three main advocates for rape crisis centers. Um, two are in the state Senate, Jim Bell mm-hmm. and Susan Rubio. And one in the uh, assembly, Blanca Rubio, who is sisters with Susan Rubio. Mm-hmm. And they're the, the folks that are the, the main proponents for rape crisis centers. Susan Rubio being a uh, rape survivor herself. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Rubio family has a very intimate uh, interest in the subject. Aside from that, you get people who sign on and you get people who sign off. And you get people to sign on, and you get people to sign off. And if their district needs a bridge, or if their district needs a road, or if their district needs something else, then, you know, sure. it's like an, an, anything else. So when it comes to funding time, yeah. you know. The, the funding I thought was really interesting, uh, and I'd never heard these numbers till you reported this in your story, but the $5,000 year in, year out amount. Or 45000 uh, excuse me, 45000 I'm sorry. Right. Yeah, 45000 amount. 
spike for all of them, all 84 centers, right? right. Spiking to 5 million during one fiscal year right. and then reverting right. to the 45,000. Right. So it's yes. really weird. So, yeah, so the backstory of that is for, you know, a, as we said in the onset, 95% of the, the funding for rape crisis centers comes from the federal government yeah. um, through two acts of Congress, the Victims of Crime Act and the Violence Against Women Act. The rest of the 5% comes from the state of California. Almost all of that comes from a penalty assessment fund. Mm -hmm. So if somebody does a crime and they, they, they're found guilty, then they get fined, they have to pay into this fund, and that gets divided yeah. among a bunch of different crime victims or organizations that serve crime victims, rape crisis centers being one of them. So the, the rape crisis centers get money for that. For uh, as many years as I can find with the, the documents that I, I've gotten, up until fiscal year 2018, 2019, the state general fund contribution for rape crisis to rape crisis centers, to 84 rape crisis centers, is was $45,000. For all of them. For all of them. But all that went to one rape crisis center, Alameda Health Services, that operates Highland Hospital, which is where a rape crisis center okay. is located. So basically, for 83 of the 84 rape crisis centers, the state general fund kicked in $0. Now, in, in the run-up to the 2018-2019 fiscal year budget, Jim Bell and Blanca Rubio got together and they pushed to get $50 million allocated to rape crisis intervention, which are rape crisis centers, and rape crisis prevention. They succeeded in getting $10 million. And that half of that went to prevention programs, half of that went to intervention programs, which are rape crisis centers. The next year, they submitted the same request, $50 million. This time they wanted continued funding. So this would just keep on happening. They With the have same to go, division, five yeah. and five. Yeah, yeah. But they they asked for fifty million again. Mm -hmm. You know, so they're hoping for for whatever. What they got was forty five thousand dollars. That forty five thousand dollars. Yes, that forty five thousand dollars. Once again, went to Alameda. Health so they basically Services. got a rounding error, is what they ended up with. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. And and in my research, I was unable to find out why that dropped. Nobody knew. People had ideas, but they, nobody would basically tell me, or they wouldn't go on record, or they would give me pretty much descriptions about how the whole funding thing works, how the state funds things, but nobody would say, oh, so-and-so made this made the call, or I made the call, and this is why I made the call. Are these staff people you talk to, or legislators, or I talk, Everybody. Yeah, I talked to the Department of Finance. I, I talked to the governor's office. I talked to the legislative analyst uh, office. I talked to the budget committees. Uh, I only was able to get one legislature, uh, Holly Mitchell, to go on record. And her response was pretty much a non-response or they didn't directly respond to the questions. Yeah. So I wasn't able to get really anything out of anybody. And the Freedom of Information Act uh, request that I sent to the Office of uh, Emergency Services, who allocates all the money. This Public Records Act request? Yeah. yeah. Didn't get any answer. In fact, I never got any answer to their press people or anybody. You know, so welcome to our world, Scott. <laughs> yeah, so so it was, uh, you know, it was a complete runaround or blackout 
from the state, you know, except for the advocates, the, you know, Bell and the Rubio, and Rubio yeah. you know. And they didn't know <laughs> why the funding dropped. So these rape crisis centers are, in relative terms, a newer thing. I know there's been a lot of coverage of the East Area Rapist, Golden State Killer. And there was a long series that the LA Times did about that. And one of the things that I thought was so interesting is that there really wasn't any response to rape victims at all in the, in the 70s, during his time in the 70s and 80s. No, that's not true. Rape really? crisis centers um, started coming into being in, in, as part of the women's movement in the early 70s. Okay. You know, the first one started around 1972 or so. Okay. So, so yeah, they're up and running. And, and you know, some rape crisis centers uh, are standalone rape crisis centers, like the Monterey County Rape Crisis Center. So you know the rape crisis centers. Some of them, like in Sacramento, the rape crisis center in Sacramento is run by Weave. You know, so it, it's under kind of a domestic violence umbrella. So it's domestic violence and sexual assault. So there's often ones like that. In Santa Clara County, the Rape Crisis Center is run by the YWCA uh, Silicon Valley. And YWCA runs some rape crisis centers down in L.A. And you've got other ones with names like Family Services of Tulare County. or you know, So it doesn't necessarily... Rape is not in there. Rape crisis is not in there. So, so a lot of these organizations are kind of hidden from the public eye just because the name is the, well, I would think, not in there. I mean, frankly, I would suspect that's by design because people don't want to talk about rape. That's really an uncomfortable conversation for most people. And, and I'm sure that drive, you, know, you don't want to drive by your driving by with your kids and say, hey, what's a rape crisis center? And well, explain you, that to your Yeah, right rape now. crisis centers, though, don't... Um, don't have signage yeah, basically saying, you know, here's the... Because people go there, you know, the, the rape survivors go there. It's like, um, you know, we know in Sacramento, we know where Weave's offices are. You know, I mean, they're administrative offices. You don't know where their actual... But we don't know where yeah, their... Yeah, yeah, we don't know where their, their the shelters are. We don't know where they, you know, where they, they, they operate the rape crisis center we don't know know that and uh, for, for, for those that report these assaults to law enforcement uh is and many don't right once it gets it's in the legal system once it's in the investigative system and in the of the a county sheriff for example or a da sure. or something at what point of those that reported how many actually are followed up do you have some notion as to just generally how many actually wind up in prosecutions of a perpetrator yeah i read a uh, a stat that somewhere about five percent Jesus. Get pro- prosecuted. Now, there's a lot of reasons why, and some of it is some of it's a reluctance for DAs to bring cases because they're really, really hard cases to win. There usually is almost always there's there's no witnesses, mm-hmm. so it becomes uh, a he said he said she said, and the uh, survivors are reluctant to engage with the the legal system Um, there's the uh, re-traumatization of survivors if they have to go to court I mean going through the account again and the details and cross-examination yeah yeah you know not everybody's um, you know Chanel Miller um, the Santa Clara um, Brock Turner case yeah, Yeah. yeah Brock Turner case you know and that's not a diss on people who don't engage. I mean, you know, I, I, I am not in their position. I can't. It, you know, the system is not oriented to make it easy 
and you look at you know what you look at what has happened to people who have come forward even if they didn't prosecute you know you you allude to this in your stories in your articles that when a high-profile rape case comes into the media for example brock turner or for example brett kavanaugh it for some people it re-traumatizes them they've already they have to sort of re-examine this experience they've already gone through and maybe they've sort of packed it away but all of a sudden it's in their face again and then you look at what happened with brett kavanaugh where basically people said i don't believe you you know and i'm sure that that doesn't make people trust the system that much right right no it's it it repels people from the system you know why should they uh engage if they're going to be you know treated like they're you know a liar or if they're going to be called a liar you know um if they're not going to be going to be trusted you know and the way that our legal system is it does give the benefit of the doubt to the to the accused so it's a the whole system, the way the system is, makes it, it, it just, it's difficult. And, you know, in one case, yeah, innocent till proven guilty. You know, we want that in the system. On the other hand, if it's, if that's going to mean that crimes aren't reported because somebody is instantly demonized by just reporting sure. a crime, yeah. you know, and then gets run through the ringer when they, when they go through the courts, and that's a problem. So it's just kind of dilemma. And then that, that whole thing creates a situation where sexual assaults underreported, rape crisis centers are underfunded because we don't, and statistics are unreliable because we don't really know what's going on out there because there's so much fear and there's so much fear by the, the people who um, have been victimized. Is there anything that you know of coming this year? We're right at the beginning of the legislative session now. Um, and it's an election year that always plays into legislation. Right. Is there anything you know this year that would change any of the things you're talking about in terms of, you know, prioritizing this, getting uh-huh. more money for it? Uh, no, not, uh, no. I believe that Senator Beal and uh, Rubio and Assemblymember Rubio are putting in their request once again for $50 million continued funding. Whether that happens or not, who knows? Any idea how the governor is on all this? Uh, Newsom? We got a new governor. Well, yeah, we got a, year a new governor, now. but you know, during the new governor, the you know the the, the bump went up during Brown's last year. Uh huh. Okay. And the bump went up. It, nobody really knows why the bump went up, but it was yeah. also around the the time of the. This Cap- is one of the great mysteries of the Capitol. Yeah, is why a, that went up. And yeah, then it's like, but it was around the Kavanaugh hearings. Okay. It was also during the time where the uh, state. The Capitol was deep in sexual misconduct scandals. Oh, we said enough stuff, yeah. Right. So, you know, the it was within the political interest of the, the legislature to, to approve that money. Mm-hmm. Next year wasn't all that, so perhaps it, it didn't seem whatever. So who knows? Election year, maybe that will, will change, maybe it won't. I, 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 I don't know, mm-hmm. you okay. know. That one, like you said, it's one of those kind of magic mystery things about the state capitol. Well, if something happens or more happens, we'll have you back. We'll talk about why then. We'll yeah, see what's going yeah, on. Yeah, if I so. can get somebody to talk to me and <laughs> yeah, tell know, me why, totally. right? Okay. <laughs> Scott Soriano, thank you very right, thank much. You. Thanks for doing it. Thank you. Tim Foster, thank you very much. All right. And this is John Howard saying we'll see you next time around. Thank you.